Good evening, and welcome to our evening service. Our Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come together into your presence to learn of you, and we pray, Holy Father, that you would teach us who you are. May we see you in your power and in your glory, the immortal, the invisible, God only wise. Help us, Father, to believe that. Help us to trust you, and help us to find our strength in the Lord, we ask, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I'd like to uh, read two passages of, uh, of Scripture tonight uh, from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, first of all, and then uh, Ephesians chapter 6. So first of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, may the Lord help us to understand his holy word and to obey its exhortations to stand strong in the Lord. Let's uh, come before the Lord and pray together. Our Father, we praise you that you are the God who directs all things according to the counsel of your will. We praise you, Lord God, that you are the God of all wisdom, that you know what is right and good. We thank you, Holy Father, for your power, that you are able to do those things that are right and good. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your goodness and your grace and your love towards us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and we praise you for that. We thank you, Holy Father, that you make yourself known, that you are a patient God, loving, but holy and just. O Lord, our God, we thank you that we can call upon your name. We pray, Holy Father, that you would come near to us and that in all of the glory of our God, you would strengthen us as you have promised, that you would stand with us as we pass through trials of many kinds, that the outcome would be that our faith would be made strong and our joy would be made complete. O Holy Father, have mercy on us. Strengthen and help us that we would walk worthy of our calling. And we ask, Lord God, that in everything Jesus Christ would be exalted. We thank you that you made yourself known in him. As John wrote, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Lord, our God, we cry out to you to show us more. But, O oh Lord, our God, we ask that you would help us to apply these things so that our faith would be made evident as we live out our lives for you, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, even in the midst of trials of many kinds. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, our God, we want to pray particularly for Iris and Rael and their family, for Avis. <coughs> we would ask, Lord God, that you would draw near to them in the loss of Earl. And we would pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen them and, and give them much grace. Lord, our God, we pray for the, the details that will be occupying them for these next few days. And then for the journey back home, we pray that you would be with them. Keep them through all of these things. We would pray for Andrew and Cheryl and Anita Joy and their family. We pray, Lord God, that you would draw near and give them comfort and consolation. And we thank you, Lord God, for their trust in you. And pray, Lord God, that you would draw especially close to them throughout all of these times. And when there are the difficulties and the challenges and when there are the good times and the encouragements, we pray that in everything your name would be exalted. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would draw near. Meet every need that they have, we pray. And we ask, Lord God, your grace upon them and the family. We would pray, Lord God, that you would continue to strengthen those who are serving, often in difficult places in this world, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who haven't heard it. Just as the Lord Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, may we as your church go out into all the world and preach the gospel. We ask, Holy Father, that you would richly bless your word. Use it powerfully, transformingly, 
to redeem those who are lost. O Holy Father, have mercy, we pray, upon a sinful, fallen world. And we ask, Lord God, that the message of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed with power. Lord our God, thank you for the time we can spend together this evening around your word. We pray that you would help us to draw out from it some practical themes and applications that would help us stand strong in the Lord. We pray, Holy Father, that we would not be a discouraged people, but a rejoicing people, that we would be constantly praising our God for all that you are, for all that you have done, for all that you have promised and will faithfully do. Help us, Lord God, again, as we have said before, to give to the Lord the glory due unto his name. Help us to worship, to come into your courts, to praise your name. So, Lord, have mercy upon us, we ask. Continue to meet with us tonight and use your word powerfully and effectively in our lives as you see fit. Feed us, change us, convict us, instruct us. O Lord, our God, we wait on you. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help as we come to his word. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you that you are the God who knows us. You know what we need. You know what is good for us. And because the Lord Jesus Christ came here and dwelt among us and was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin, you know, O Lord, the weaknesses we have. You know our frame that we are dust. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have prepared this plan of salvation for people like us. Thank you, Lord God, that you know these things and that you are wise, right, and good in the exercise of them. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to give you praise and glory. So direct our thoughts, we ask, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. The uh, pair of texts that I read to you uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, And uh, I think I probably dealt with this not uh, all that long ago here. Uh, Maybe your memory is better than mine. my filing system has not improved, uh, and so I couldn't check it out uh, without a, a great deal of effort, uh, and I decided it wasn't worth it. I was going to speak on it anyway. Uh, that's the advantage of being a guest speaker, right? You don't have to worry about what they spoke about last week. You just uh, uh, carry on. Uh, but what I particularly wanted to think about uh, was the, the applications of this. Uh, what are the principles that Paul gives us to enable us to be strong when we are passing through the, the trials and, uh, and the difficulties? How do we stand strong in the evil day, as he puts it uh, in Ephesians chapter 6? How do we live through uh, our, our weakness, as, uh, as 2 Corinthians Uh, 12 would put it. These churches are interesting. Uh, Paul's circumstances were hard. Uh, You read the book of Acts and you realize the challenges he faced in his mission. You read in 2 Corinthians, the the couple of chapters leading up to what I read, and and he gives a list of the the shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonments. Uh, and, And the thing is that the 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 wider churches knew about what Paul was going through. Uh, 
But their reactions of these two particular churches were very different. In Corinth, it was more like they despised that weakness. Paul was appearing as weak because of these sufferings, and uh, and they didn't like that. They liked their leaders strong and dynamic. And that's really what this uh, last section from chapter 10 on in 2 Corinthians uh, is, is dealing with. Paul is addressing that perspective. The Ephesians, of course, were much more sympathetic to the apostle, but according to Ephesians 3, verse 13, Paul was afraid that they were going to lose heart. He says, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So the churches would hear of the sufferings that Paul was going through, and they would react to them. Uh, in the case of Corinth, they're wondering whether they should maybe back away from Paul a little bit. In the case of the Ephesians, Paul feared that they may be losing heart. Uh, that they, they may not be standing strong. And, and so in order to deal with this challenge, Paul gives us these two statements that I read, 2 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 6, about how to live uh, in the midst of these troubles and afflictions, that strength is sometimes camouflaged as weakness. Uh, we might think it's weakness, but we need to rethink how we're approaching this and, and what our assumptions are. So we have this exhortation to stand fast in the Lord, uh, not to lose heart. How do we go about this? Uh, I want to start by giving the teaching on weakness. That's a, a, a little bit more uh, grand-sounding title than what I'm actually going to do. But basically, just look at the context of those two passages. That, that's what I want to do here. But the main thing I wanted to emphasize is the second main point, uh, where we think about six principles that we can put into practice uh, as we work this out. So first of all, the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians dealt with the challenge of a people who were proud of their wisdom. They, they thought they had things figured out, and they were a, a church of spiritual vitality. Uh, and although that may have partly been their inability to understand what true spiritual vitality was, Paul is complimentary towards the church, and it seems that at least some of it was quite genuine, and Paul was pleased uh, to see it. Nevertheless, because of this pride that was creeping in, a couple of bad tendencies had grown in the church. One is that they started to follow strong leaders, and then they started to debate who the strong leader is. Peter is stronger than Paul, or I follow Apollos, and, and, and so on. And, and so it was fracturing the, the church, in fact, because they were looking for that, that leader that they could hold up above the others. And Paul goes on to explain that that's not how it works in the church. Uh, our foundation is Christ. We build upon that. Uh, Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're, they're servants Christ gives to the church for your benefit, uh, but it's Christ. He's the foundation we stand on him. They had become a little disorderly, uh, careless with their morality. It was starting to affect their witness, and they were a little bit resistant to any attempts to correct them, uh, again because of that, that underlying arrogance. Second Corinthians is a response to their response. 
which of course we don't have. Uh, but as Paul looks at the situation in 2 Corinthians, in some ways he's pleased. The first part of the letter, especially the first seven chapters or so, uh, he is quite pleased that the church has taken what he has said to heart and they have corrected a number of the issues about which he was concerned. But then something else or something growing out of that also reared its head, and and that was this triumphalist streak. We're triumphant. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be suffering these afflictions. We're going to be a strong people. Uh, We're going to go out into our world, and and we're going to mow them down. Uh, the, The church is already triumphant. Not unlike the health and wealth gospel of our own day, Uh, That is suggesting that if you're following the Lord and doing things right, then sufferings are going to be uh, a a thing of the past. Uh, What was going on in Corinth and 2 Corinthians has a little bit of that flavor to it. Uh, That's a a, a little bit how they're, uh, they're thinking and acting. And some leaders had come into the church and seemed to be taking advantage of this. Paul's ministry, and by extension his gospel of Christ crucified, was at the very least downplayed and by some rejected. Some of these leaders were coming in and they were saying, well, you know what, Paul was good as your kindergarten teacher, but you're in university now. Uh, You've outgrown him. Uh, You you need to follow us. We're the the strong leader. We'll take you on in that, uh, that triumph. Paul, well... He keeps going on about being crucified in weakness and, uh, and so on. And that's what Paul is, is dealing with in the latter part of, uh, of 2 Corinthians. His answer is to point to the cross. He says Christ was crucified in weakness. And so weakness is going to be known in the church. You can't be followers of a crucified Christ without knowing weakness. But think about that. The weakness of the cross resulted in what exactly? It resulted in the triumph of the resurrection. Uh, And and so, yes, he was, was crucified in weakness, but he was raised again by the power of God. He underlines that resurrection power. Remember 2 Corinthians 5? Uh, You know, the uh, raised again, uh, looking forward to that resurrection. We're in Christ, and therefore we're going to put off this tent and put on that uh, which is is from above and, and so on. So, yes, there is weakness, but they're misunderstanding it. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Sometimes I despaired even of life, but there is comfort only God can give. This God who raises the dead strengthens us. And so we glory in the cross. The blessings of the new covenant are ours through Christ, and we find strength in the Lord Jesus Christ in our weakness. The context in Ephesians chapter 6 is somewhat different. Unlike the Corinthians and the Galatians for that matter, there was no major controversy apparently with the Ephesians. The issue with the Ephesians was not that they were denying the truth. It was not that there was a practice particularly that needed to be uh, corrected. But you can be living that way and still get discouraged in the trial. And that's Paul's concern. That despair seems to be setting in. And when despair starts to set in, it has the same effect of the triumphalism in Corinth. The triumphalism in Corinth seemed to indicate that we don't need the cross. The despair in Ephesus 
took their attention off the cross and away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul write about in Ephesians? Well, he writes about riches. The exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Know the riches of glory that are ours. We preach Christ. We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think about what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the church is not just some kind of of unpopular club. The church is God's very dwelling place. We need to look at things from the direction of redemption. We need to see it as God is at work. The glory of God's grace fills uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It starts and ends with Paul's prayer that they would understand, that this would sink into their minds, that they would grasp the, the, the truth of the gospel. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, that they would walk worthy of it. That they would live that out. It has to impact our our whole lives. Far from losing heart, we should be pursuing this new covenant community established in Christ. Uh, Our our marriages are supposed to be a reflection of this new creation. Uh, Our manner of life, uh, everything is transformed by the gospel of Christ. But it's not done in a vacuum. The principalities and powers, the enemy manifests himself. And this will always be an ongoing factor as long as we're in this world. Yet still, stand fast in the Lord. Don't lose heart. Fight that battle. And so that's a brief thumbnail sketch of some of the background of these two passages. Where Paul underlines these these two great themes. We can confront our weakness head-on and rejoice in 2 Corinthians 12. And we can face the principalities and powers, these unseen forces, the wiles of the devil. We can face these things with our feet planted and remain standing when the dust settles. So what does Paul want us to think about? What are those perspectives that we need uh, to develop. As I thought about these two passages, I came up with these six. Uh, I'm not uh, at all pretending uh, that they are exhaustive, uh, but these are the things that, that occurred to me as I thought about these, uh, these passages and these, these letters, the burden the Apostle Paul had uh, for these Christians. The first principle that I wanted to underline is that we need to admit our personal weakness. You see how Paul approaches this in 2 Corinthians 12. Now, because of that background I just gave you, that that explains why he approaches it like this. But I I don't know how you would do it. If somebody came along and said, well, you know what? I I look at you and, and, well, you look kind of weak to me. I I want a leader who's a leader, right? Uh, A a man's man, someone who, you know, is able to uh, come and and stand against these things. And, you know, he's going to be like, you know, the guy on the prow of the boat. And, uh, well, you you can fill in the picture that you prefer on on your own. But it's that kind of of leader we're, we're looking for. Now, if somebody said that to you, we tend to get a little defensive uh, at times like that. We start to say, well, I'm not as weak as all that. Uh, you remember the time when I did this? Uh, and you remember the time when I did that? That's not weak, is it? You know what Paul does? 
He starts to say, you say I'm weak? I'm weaker than you've ever imagined. Let me start to list my weakness. And he tells them how he was let down in a basket over the wall in Damascus. And, and how he was shipwrecked so many times. And, and how he was stoned and left for, for dead. And, and, and then he has the audacity to say, I will glory in my infirmities. I will glory in my infirmities. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is not saying that there really isn't that much of a battle. You can do this. There's no real problem. That's not what he says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Once again... We have a tendency to downplay the dangers, right? Uh, somebody says, well, that's going to be dangerous if we do that. And you say, well, it's not really all that bad. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to handle it. But Paul says, it's far worse than you think. <laughs> it's not just the dangers you can see. There's all the dangers you can't see. And so Paul never downplays the struggle. His weakness was real weakness. There were times when he was broken by his church's unfaithfulness, uh, broken by the trials that he faced. Uh, his co-worker would get sick and, and, and Paul would cry before the Lord because of that. I don't know what your vision of Paul is, but that's the vision he paints in his, in his letters. He knew his weakness. And he knew what the church was going to face. The Lord Jesus himself prepared us for that. The, 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 the wolves dressed up like sheep, uh, sending us out in the midst of these ravenous wolves and, uh, and, and so on. And so Paul underlines the truth that runs throughout the Bible. I trust that you are regular readers of the Psalms. And of course, what do you find in the Psalms? I am poor and needy. How long, O Lord? The psalmist is always crying out to God, recognizing the difficulties. We follow a crucified Lord. We were reminded in Sunday school this morning of the ending of Romans chapter 8. We love the verse that Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ought to love that verse. What a glorious text it is. But what are the verses that precede it? <laughs> well, everything that's trying to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Yeah, nothing can do it. But everything's going to try. We're going to be under that onslaught. We admit the problem. I alluded to Psalm 103 earlier. He knows our frame. Uh, he knows we are dust. I mean, he made us. He, he's aware of this. It's the realism of the Bible that helps us use it in the midst of the trial. The Bible is not the, you know, trivial, light, surface kind of thing. It's written by those who are in the midst of this very battle that we are in. And that's why it is so valuable for us. It's not being optimistic. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not the willpower to keep smiling no matter how bad it gets. It's crying out to the Lord 
and finding that he's enough, that he is able to keep us from falling. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus said as he's going to the cross? In the world, you will have tribulation. Now, you know the verse, so you know what the next line is. But if you didn't know the verse, you'd never guess the next line. (laughs) Here is Jesus about to be arrested and taken to the cross, unjustly tortured and crucified. Here are his disciples being informed that in this world they are going to have tribulation. So what's the next line? Be of good cheer. (laughs) Doesn't it seem a little out of place? Well, what's the foundation? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, it's that Christ-centered perspective. Yes, the cross. But the cross Weak, but strong. So the first thing, we admit our personal weakness. We understand that we're not going to be able to uh, grit our teeth, keep our upper lips stiff, and noses to the grindstone. Of all those illustrations, that's got to be the worst one. I don't quite know where that came from. But nonetheless, we can't do that. That's not what the Bible is saying. We admit our personal weakness. If the Lord does not keep our feet on the rock, we slip. We admit that. Principle number two, before I cause all of you to despair, uh, let's move on to the second principle. Allow for providential wisdom. What do I mean by that? Well, On the one hand, trial is always the product of a sinful world, and the ultimate goal of redemption is to be done with it, right? You read the end of the Bible, and what do you see? Every tear is wiped away, uh, sorrow and sighing are no more, death is no more. Uh, Ultimately, the things that, that wear us down and cause us to despair are going to be dealt with. Sometimes, however, we jump to the conclusion that since that is the end point, it should be done now, that the tears should be wiped away today. Now, it's not happening. I mean, clearly, just by observation, God has other plans. But what I'm getting at here is that we need to allow that God knows better than we do what is good. Now, I know that, you know, if I came up to you and say, do you know better than God, what is good? Of course you're going to say no. You're all well-trained. You know the answer to that. But sometimes, though we may not verbalize it, we're not quite sure that God really knows what is good. And so the principle is that we need to allow for providential wisdom. Uh, Again, Romans 8. We love Romans 8.28, and again, rightly so. God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But did you notice that little bit at the end? It kind of gives a twist to the verse. When he said all things work together for good, I had my definition in place. For good means I don't hurt. For good means 
I can stick my bank card into any banking machine in the world and there's resources there to, to, for the machine to spit out. The thing that is good for me is family and, and career and, and, and so on. But that's not quite what Romans 8 said. God works all things together for good according to his purpose. God gets to define what is good. And in Romans 8, he defines it as being conformed to the image of his Son. You see, what God thinks is good may not correspond to my usual thinking about what is good. It's to be transformed into likeness to Christ. I mentioned two psalms, and there, there's a verse in each of these psalms that's almost the same thing. Uh, let me just read to you the two uh, excerpts, at least, uh, that I, uh, I, I put in the notes. Psalm 57. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge, until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God Most High, unto God who performs all things for me. Think about that. God performs all things for me. Is God against me? Hardly. He's working it out. This is the providence of God. In the midst of these calamities, in the midst of this circumstance, I trust that God knows what he's doing. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. The other one is Psalm 138, and I'll just read the last two verses of this. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and my, thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. He perfects that which concerns me. In the midst of his affliction, and both of these psalms are in that context of affliction and trial, in the midst of trouble, the Lord revives his people. In the midst of trouble, believe that God in his providential wisdom knows what he's doing. And what this requires is that I know who God is. As Christians, we need to be students of the attributes of God. That's why we started with immortal, invisible, God-only wise, and light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, and light, inaccessible, and worthy of praise. We've got to know our God, or we can't apply this principle. We need to know He is wise. We need to know He is good. So how do we learn the attributes of God? The first great definition of the attributes of God is in Exodus 34. And what just happened? Well, the Exodus just happened. 
Where do you see the attributes of God in their, in their sharpest focus? Well, you see it in redemption. And for the Christian, that means we see it at the cross. You see the wisdom of God at the cross. Nobody would have guessed what God was doing by the cross. You see the power of God who is able to redeem from all iniquity, blood that cleanses completely, resurrection power that demonstrates life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus will declare uh, on the basis of that. How do you know about love? You study it at the foot of the cross. God commendeth His love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Allow for providential wisdom. In fact, there is a set of four great texts. Maybe there's others as well, but these are the four that always come to my mind. Romans 5, Hebrews 12, James 1, 1 Peter 1. All of those texts connect suffering with joy. You might remember James, right? Count it all joy when you fall into all of these trials. Romans 5 does the same thing. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, we stand in this grace. And we also, he slips in, glory in our tribulations. And like James, he goes on to explain why. Because tribulation works patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope will never leave you stranded. Hope doesn't make ashamed. Hebrews 12 points us to Christ. For the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despising its shame. First Peter 1, of course. How can we forget that great line, joy unspeakable and full of glory? In what context? Facing trials of many kinds. So these verses tie these themes together, and it's rooted in the understanding that God is in control and He is wise and good. He is controlling, He is perfecting all things for me. He performs all things for me. He is at work for my good. Isn't that what Romans 8 is getting at when it says if God is for us, who can be against us? We've got to know this God. And we will never know this God apart from the cross. We see His attributes on clear display at the cross of Jesus Christ. I know. Pick up the speed. (laughs) Principle number three. Appeal in prayerful waiting. Both texts underline prayer. Crying out to God calling upon the Lord. 2 Corinthians famously tells us how Paul prayed three times that that thorn in the flesh would be removed. And God said no. He promised grace instead. But it doesn't get around the fact that Paul prayed. 2 Corinthians 1 underlined that Paul expected benefits and blessings and even deliverance by means of the prayers of the church. We are to be a praying people. The armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 ends with prayer. Praying with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. And pray for me, 
that I might make the gospel known. But even more significantly, in Ephesians 3, remember I, I, I mentioned Ephesians 3, verse 13, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you. What's the wherefore mean? What's the therefore? He's drawing a conclusion. I don't want you to faint at my tribulations. Why not? Because of verses 10, 11, and 12. Under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, God intended to be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God in, uh, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is astounding stuff in Ephesians. What Paul wants us to see is this eternal plan of God, that we are part of that. The world walks by laughing at our coming to church on a Sunday evening, laughing at the things that we believe and sing about and, and, and so on. But Paul says, this is the eternal plan of God. What's happening here is what God had in mind before the world began. And he's working it out in Christ to the glory of Christ that for all eternity by the church, the wisdom of God is made known. And then he says in verse 12, in that Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom God's purposes are tied up, in that very one, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Therefore, don't faint. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? The God who made us, is the God who plans for us and the God who's carrying it out in Christ? And at what point is he going to forget about his plan? Well, never, of course. At what point is he going to change his mind? Never, because it's about the glory of his Son. This is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so cry out to him, you have boldness and access. You are reconciled to God by the cross, he says in chapter 2. We have access by the Spirit to the Father through Jesus Christ, the triune God. Here's our prayers. The believer is not expected to form a theological principle of suffering and then grit his teeth until it's over. He is expected to be walking into the throne room of God, crying out to God and making his requests known to him. We have a great high priest who knows the sufferings we face. Thank God for Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. Wait on the Lord the God before whom all the nations are a little bit of dust on the scale that you don't even bother to brush off because it makes no difference. The drop in the bucket that's so tiny that you still say the bucket's empty. That's what the nations are to God. So wait on the Lord. This is the God to whom we have access. The fourth principle Acknowledge his powerful working. And what I mean by that is recognize that God is already at work. 
What Paul is talking about in this purpose of God is already underway. Christ has already come. The cross and the resurrection are behind us now. The purpose is well underway and speeding towards its glorious conclusion. And so when you look at the the troubles that you're in and you fall into the trap of thinking God is not working in your case because He's not answering the specific trial in the way that you particularly think He should, He says, go look at the cross. The purpose and plan of God is well underway and He's accomplishing it. Recognize that God is already powerfully at work. This is the, the prayer of the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 1. Ever since I heard of your faith, I do not stop giving thanks for you, praying for you. What? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That's a long way of saying you've got to understand the gospel. You've got to grasp what God is doing here and understand not what the world thinks you are, but what Christ says you are, what Christ makes you to be. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know three things. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and verse 19 particularly, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And how can we describe that power? According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God is already at work. God's power is already on display. Paul wants us to shape our understanding and our endurance of trial by the cross and resurrection. That's what he's getting at when he says, when I am weak, then am I strong. Then I am allowing for God's providential wisdom. Then I am prayerfully waiting on the Lord and I acknowledge His powerful working and when the dust settles, look at that, I was strong. You thought I was weak. I despaired even of life. But look, here I am by the grace of God. It doesn't fail. Fifth principle, acquire proven weaponry. Obviously, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. We've often talked about this, this passage. And the thing about it, of course, is that phrase, the armor of God. Now, on, on the surface, the armor of God can simply mean it's the armor that comes from God. And that's true enough. But in Isaiah 59, God puts on the armor. This is where the language comes from that Paul is using here. It's God who straps on his breastplate of righteousness. God sees his people with nobody to help, no mediator, no one to stand up for his people. So God does it. He goes to his armory and he pulls out the things that he needs in order to conquer the enemy and establish his people and justify them. And so when Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, He doesn't just mean the armor that God has provided for you. He means the armor that God has worn for you. This is the foundation of our salvation. 
God used it to work out our redemption. It's proven in battle. God bears His arm. The Old Testament promises are trustworthy. No enemy can stand before this God. Remember Exodus 15 as Israel stands on the far side of the Red Sea? The enemy has been cast into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is our Redeemer. One of my favorite passages, I mean, that's not the right way to put it, but one of the most moving passages on this theme, to my mind, is Psalm 18. This is where David is summarizing his life. It's also found at the end of 2 Samuel. But he says, the Lord is my rock. And he goes on to describe God for two or three verses. And then for two or three verses, he explains the trouble he was in. And how he cried out to God to help. And then there's a description of God on the move. Heaven is torn open because God is coming down. And and the world is shattered because David prayed and God came to his aid. Recognize that he's working. This weapons, they're proven weapons. He won't abandon us now. God is for us. No one can be against us. Christ is our Redeemer, our Intercessor. Will the battle rage for a while longer? Yes. Yes, it will. But never think the outcome is in doubt. Put on the armor and stand in the evil day. And then our last principle. Affirm a persistent watch, which is an alliterative way of saying, well, do it. Stand. Work out these principles. Think about this. Think carefully about what you are in Christ. Think carefully about who Christ is. Think about the attributes of this God. Go over this again and again in your mind. Learn that He is wise. That's why we have all of these accounts in the Scriptures. So we'll learn who God is. It's not just that we'd get so excited about Joseph and his dreams. It's so that we'll learn the providence of God. Look at what Joseph went through. And how did it come out? That's what we're supposed to see. God knew the situation and God used the situation. Did it mean Joseph had to stay in jail for a couple of years unjustly? Yeah, it did mean that. But in the providential wisdom of God, look at what we learn because of it. Look at what God did. And Joseph can get to the end of his life and tell his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To save many people alive. By the cross, he saves many. Paul says to the Corinthians, You despise weakness? I glory in it. Christ was crucified in weakness and that saved me. I will glory in my weakness because then I'm strong. To the Ephesians, he writes, Are you going to despair in the midst of your trial when you have 
the resources of this God, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the armor of God, when all of this is your portion, act on what you know to be true and do not lose heart. Take pleasure in the display of God's strength even in our weakness as that which magnifies God's grace. It's not by our power we stand, not by our resources. It was never designed to be. It's in Christ alone. It will remain true for every Christian for all time. When we are weak, then are we strong. May God help us think through the principles of that strength and weakness and trial and triumph and understand what we have in Christ and understand that whatever we're facing, it's enough. He is sufficient. And then one day, every tear is wiped away. And we will, for eternity, praise our God. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord God, that you know what we need. And thank you, Lord God, for the way that you have shown it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the Apostle Paul prayed that the Ephesians would understand. That's now our prayer. Please, Lord, in the midst of our trial and affliction, help us understand what we have in Christ. Help us understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Help us understand the exceeding greatness of his power, that power that raised Christ from the dead. Help us to understand that if God is for us, no one can be against us, and that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to know that he is wise and good and just and powerful and holy and loving. O Lord, may we know our God. May we increase in the knowledge of God. And may we be strengthened with his might because of it. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.